Oh, good morning. How are you? Good. Oh, man. I'm very excited about today. Uh, get to talk about a subject we don't really talk about much in church, so that's great. Um, and I want to just do a quick reminder. First of all, I'm Ryan Grable. I'm the lead pastor. I'm glad that you guys are here. And um, we did this series before Easter called Oikos. And in the back of all your chairs, if you don't know what this is or don't have one, I'd just like encourage you to maybe consider taking one home with you. This is our, I would say, our main focus uh, as a church, and that's to go and reach people in our lives for the gospel. The principle is this, is that there are 10 to f 8 to 15 people in your life that you have the most influence with that God has on your heart probably regularly, and to start in the process of at least following these steps of like, you know what, like, I want to be able to have an opportunity to share the gospel with one of the people who are closest to me in life. And so the steps are simple, like step one, make a list of people. So easy, right? Such an easy step. Just list people out. I, I'm not fully uh, filled out my card yet because there are a few people I'm, I think I've been a little hesitant on. Like, do I want to start praying for them, God? No, I'm just like, but, but like that first thing of making a list of people that maybe you know in your life that are naturally placed in your life, that God has placed you in their life to share the gospel. They're going to listen to you more than they will listen to me. I just want to let you know that. Uh, and then secondly, you'll just begin to pray for them. If you just even do the first step of just praying for these people, praying for these ones that you love, God will begin to open doors in your heart, open opportunities in your heart when you're placing someone on your mind. Uh, there's a guy in Texas who... Uh, is, is like on my mind, one of the guys I really, really love. And it's interesting because like somebody kind of goes out of your mind, you know how this is, until they text you and you're like, oh my gosh, how are you? Like, but this places someone right in the forefront of your mind every single week and every single day. And so there's opportunities that you're like, okay, God, how can I be an influence in their life? God, how can you open doors in my life? I look for opportunities to serve them. I look for events or things like the things that Chrissy was talking about to say, hey, I want to invite my oikos to come join me. And so we have already begun to have a lot of great stories about uh, the first steps in oikos from someone saying, hey, I just started praying for somebody every day. and Or two, I actually went out of my way and made a connection with this person to begin the process. Our, we had a wall out there, I don't know if it's still out there, of, of testimonies of, of people saying, yeah, that, here's a testimony, my first beginning process of oikos. It, it is the central call of Christians. It, there is nothing more important than this call, the Great Commission. And so it's, it needs to be at the forefront of what we do. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, and just let's just see what God does. If you have a testimony that something has begun to move in your oikos, email us. Fill out one of those cards there in the back. Um, we would love to celebrate that with you. So um, let's pray and we'll get started. God, we thank you so much today for um, just the movement we're seeing in people's lives and their personal invitation or their personal uh, 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 gospel sharing experience with their friends and family, the doors that you're going to open. God, as we read Hebrews, 
God, I ask that you just open our hearts, open our minds, help us see these scriptures in a way maybe we haven't before through the guidance of your spirit. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, we decided to do this book of Hebrews, and about a couple times a year at least, we will take a book and we will study the book. And I, I, I just likened it to this analogy that I used last week about like really understanding the moving parts of the scripture. Sometimes when you flip open the Bible, I get it. It's like, yeah, I don't know what any of that is. <laughs> my, uh, my mom, when, uh, th- th- we'll get into this, one of these uh, phrases of Jesus, one of his titles. And my mom used to pray like, Jesus, you are a high priest. And as a kid, I'm like, high priest, like, like, like Father Ron at the church or the high priest. Like, I didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't understand the language. I didn't connect it fully. And it was like, the high priest, like, what is he doing? What I imagine Jesus in this white robe, beautiful white beard, you know what I mean? And he's conducting, like, what high priests do. I don't know what they do. And it was just a confusing language. Hebrews has some of that language, but what we do when we unpack it, is we kind of bring us all into what the writer is talking about. Because there's significance behind that title. It can't just be something that we just, oh, okay, that's that. And so that's why we take our time to do it. This whole book is going to say one thing. And you'll walk out, I pray, thinking one thing, that Jesus is better. And living for him is worth everything. That's what the hope of the writer wanted for those people, and that's what it continues to do in churches all throughout history to today. Hebrews, remember this. It is a sermon. It's not written like the other, the other epistles or the writings of Paul or Peter. Those were instructional letters, informational letters. Those were encouraging letters. This is a sermon. And we're going to read it like a sermon, and it should be studied like a, like a sermon. But at the end of the day, his sermon, his point, what he wants people to understand and hopefully feel is that don't give up. If you're here and you're like, I want to give up, like I'm, I'm tired or I'm getting tired, or you know someone who's getting tired in their faith, they're drifting off, they're wandering off, they're just losing sight of it. He is reminding them, do not give up. Last week, we talked about the title was Jesus is Better. It's the opening statement. We studied four verses. We're going to go a lot faster today uh, because it's the flow of the sermon itself. But he has this opening statement that was so profound. You should read the first four verses or go back to last week because it's the statement, the vision statement for the book of what he would hope that his people, he's writing to his struggling church, would be able to just own and, and, and accept and say themselves with all confidence of those four things that Jesus, that God speaks today. God spoke very clearly through Jesus, and Jesus is able to save you from sin. This is an opening statement they must, must possess. This week, we're going to understand, and it's important too, I think, is that like uh, faith in Christ has, I think, must be understood in light of his authority. If we do not understand the authority of Jesus, if we do not understand who Jesus is and the power of Christ and where and how he reigns, you will not fully understand of what you possess in your salvation. This is what the writer's trying to get to here. You won't understand 
what he did and how he did it. If you do not understand, first and foremost, the authority that Jesus has. Uh, I, I think when I was studying this message, this, this popped right in my head. You, you know how you, there are things that you in your life that you're like, you can't imagine what life would be like without this thing in your life? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, some of you may be experienced because I can see that you are just uh, a, a, a little older than the internet. And so, but when you think about it, I think about it like, what would life, I can't even imagine life now without the internet or smartphones. Can you even imagine? Would you want to go back to that? You would? Okay, Chad, take note. That was a failed analogy. That'll be on our wins and fails. Okay, then I'll speak for myself. Since you're so wanting to get back to Puritan ways, I, I don't imagine, I can't imagine going back to a life where I am watching sports on a tube TV, on a 15-inch tube TV, and I'm watching a pixelated Michael Jordan destroy my Detroit Sweet Pistons. And, and I remember just watching it, and, and I look back, and I'm like, how did you even see? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? You, you younger people, you don't even know what it was like. It was you suffered greatly. Jack, you don't get it. Yeah, I know you. You will never understand what HDTV has done for my life. I would never go back. If you said, I want to show you this classic game and try to show me on a tube TV, I'd be like, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm going to YouTube it. Um, how, about a, how about a dishwasher? Oh, my. Once you have a dishwasher, you can't go back. And if you, a dishwasher breaks in your house, I would fix the dishwasher over the refrigerator. It's like this. Can, I, it's funny because we've had our dishwasher break, and I've seen my kids are like, how do you wash a dish? They, they, you could never go back, or even kids. Once you have kids, you're just like, maybe this is a really bad analogy because there's oftentimes I'm like, man, when I didn't have the kids, wow, those were the days. I didn't have to take 45 minutes to get into the car to leave. It was fantastic. But you think, I, I can't even imagine life without these things. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to a people who have had something that you, you couldn't imagine leaving and going back to, but they are considering leaving their faith. They are considering giving up. They had something. They had what was life and life abundantly, and now they are considering going back and leaving something. How? I think he's perplexed. How could you leave this? And so what he does is in this first opening part, he'll begin to be like, listen, you have to know what you're choosing to leave. And he drives it home in them. The writer is trying to wake them up from a false nostalgia. They're saying, oh, it, life was better when? When tough times come. Life is easier when? When my hardship and my faith is challenged, it was just easier than, it was simpler than. But it's a promise that, they, that he will then unfold in his sermon, that it's a promise that isn't there for them anymore. They're trying to return to the old ways of going back to temple worship. Because 
No one was persecuting them at the time if you were in temple worship. They were experiencing extreme persecution for their faith in Jesus. And so just to go back, to go back to the temple worship, to a promise that and a covenant that is no longer there for them. The promise never does no longer pay out. They will be what Paul says, you will be laboring in vain. Do you want to waste your life doing that? Now you don't do temple worship. I don't think, I don't think, I don't know. But we have things that call us back that that that, that are false nostalgia. They say so things were better then. And we forget the abundance of life that we have experienced to go after things that are laboring in vain. We can relate to this, although it's not the exact scenario. I have, over the years, um, just because of my job, seen many people that I love and care about who have walked away from their faith. I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's a really hard thing to watch. Because I feel like this writer who loves these people and saying, why are you walking away? Why are you going to things that will, are, 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 are temporary? Why do you want to put your life and trust there? Why would you leave? And, I, and it breaks my heart. And some of those people are on my Oikos list because I'm praying for their return or praying for them to wake up. But it's kind of interesting because I, I've had the great joy of seeing people over the years, years later, come back into the church and like, I just feel like I should be at church now. Whatever they were chasing didn't, the nostalgia wasn't there. And they realized, like the prodigal son, that there was something better. They laughed and they had come back. There's nothing better when I experience that. This is what the writer is hoping to do for them. Let me read the new covenant. The new covenant reality is very important to read the rest of Hebrews. He gets into it in chapter 8, but we won't get there for a little while. But it's important to frame what he's saying they're going to give up um, with this new covenant. He quotes it later on in chapter 8, Jeremiah 31, 31, but I'll quote it here now. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, anytime you read scripture, and, it, and you got to pay attention because when it's, and every time you hear from God, and I will and you shall, these are good ones. These are really good. When God is a, I will, meaning that he will do it, and you shall, meaning it, it will be delivered to you. I will make a new covenant. And the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. Talking about them, the, the Moses, the covenant with Moses. And he says, and my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, I was the one caring for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, meaning the Christ's covenant declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will not have it or something where they, they read it and follow it. I will actually place it within them. And listen to this. I will write it on their hearts. It will become a permanent fixture. The law will be fulfilled in their heart. This is the covenant of Christ. And he said, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall know, all know me. 
from the least, not just the high priests, not just the religious leaders, from the least, right? Or the greatest to the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord. It doesn't get better than that. That is new covenant theology at its best. That's our hope and our promise. And when God says, I will, and closes with us, saith the Lord, you should bank on it. God spoke then. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. And he will quote it later to remind them of this covenant that is now installed for you. To return to the old is a, is, is a, is a, a dated deal. God has brought a new covenant. But I got to read this last part because you should really read this whole chapter. And I should too, but I don't have time. It says, and then he starts to list something. God does this sometimes. He starts to list his credentials. Lust says, the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. This, this is, you can take it to the bank. Just look up in the sky day or night. And that is what I am able to do. Look up at the sky. And he goes on and on and on in that chapter, listing like, this is who I am. Just look around. Let it remind you that my word will stand. I wills will happen and you shalls will happen. Don't forget. Just look up at the sky and you will see my credentials. Jesus and the new covenant are better is what this Verse is saying. And he's going to ask them something. He's going to do something in this in, in the next couple chapters that's brilliant for a sermon. And he is going to systematically challenge them. And he will start with a topic that I don't really ever talk about much in church, but it was a big deal in that church at the time. And he is going to systematically present to them the option that they will have to, to return to their old ways. This relates to you and I and how we will choose other ways besides Christ in our life. You will have to remove him systematically in your heart from authority in the heavens and the earth through the, through the prophets. And you will have to remove him over the sacrificial system. You will have to essentially null and void Jesus' authority from your life if you want to return to your old ways. And so he systematically presents them with the option to do that. I love the structure of his sermon. If they want to return to their old ways, they will have to dethrone Jesus in their heart to do it. And he's saying, is that what you want to do? Or he's going to challenge them to recommit to the reality of which they experienced. And to actually hold tighter to it. I titled this message, Highest Place. And I think that's the only way I could really say it. I think we should ask these questions. Who rules your heart? It's a deep question. And it has to be an honest one. And is Jesus the authority in your heart? Hmm. Is he the final say? Is he the one who has ultimate authority in your heart? Or has he been usurped by something else? Are we trying to return to something that we once found to be vain and vanity? A couple things you're going to see throughout Hebrews, and you'll start to see the touch of it here, so that's why I have to mention it, is that you're going to see that Jesus' authority and covenant is greater than Abraham. 
if you know the story, Moses and David. Jesus, he's going to make this case, which he does well. He, it is greater than these covenants. And not only that, he's going to make this case that what you have in Jesus is greater than what Abraham had with God, with what Isaac had with God, what Jacob had, what Joseph had, what Moses had. He lists all these names, by the way, later in chapter 11. The miraculous exodus, it's greater than that. It's greater than what Gideon had, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, and all the, the prophets. And in chapter 11, which you should definitely come to church for when we do it, it is one of the best chapters I think I've read in a long time in Scripture that reminded me of something to... to, um, to that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, people who have carried through suffering and, and, and hardship to deliver uh, the, the, the consistency of God's covenant to a new covenant. It, it is an incredible chapter. His authority supersedes every name. You're going to feel this in this writing. It supersedes every authority. Jesus is king. And he needs to make it clear, very, very clear. So he's going to give two very clear callbacks to their revelation. He's going to call them back to remind them of something. And hopefully we are, in a way, re-inspired and called back to something. I loved helping my kids with math when they were in second grade. I was a rock star. You want to know how to add? Boom, I'm good. Like, you can do those in your head. Oh, yeah. I can. I'm good. Like, it was like, do you know what I'm talking about, parent? And it was awesome. And I was just killing it. I was literally to, is equal to Albert Einstein to them. It was like, my dad's a genius. Seventh grade, I, I had realized I had forgotten the, the fundamentals of, of advanced math. And I was like, okay, so, and I'm trying to pretend, like, is this how you do it? I'm like, sure. Of course. And they'd be like, I was, it was wrong. And I'm like, oh, you must have done it wrong. You're never my fault. And so it, I remember it was just one of these things that I had, I had lost the very base principles that we could build more principles of math, the smaller little details that made it more complex and more advanced. And so he does something here where he starts with the very base level that you have to have to understand the authority of Jesus before we look to Moses and we look to the temple sacrificial system or before we look to authorities elsewhere we have to he has to first lay out the fundamental foundational authority of Jesus and he does that in a way he doesn't skip a step here he goes here very systematically to establish the fundamental reality of Jesus's authority and he does it through the supernatural. And, and, and I'll put this up on my first thought. The first callback is, is that remember, Jesus has all authority. He is all authority. And all authority is his. Philippians 2.19, Paul, another writer, wrote this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that was very, very important. Because he wasn't just talking about Caesar at that time. He was talking about the name that's above every name in heavenly realms and in earth. And, and, and so he breaks into angels. Now, I don't ever really talk about angels. I don't know if you study a lot about angels. I have had the wonderful privilege preparing for this to study a lot about angels. 
The angels were very, very significant in Scripture. They were very, very important. They were created by God, and they were numer- so numerous you couldn't count them. They had a hierarchy amongst them. They were considered messengers or deliverers of what God's will was. They, if you remember this, they guided Israel out of Egypt. Actually, the law even came through them as messengers. So he is framing that even those who delivered the law, Jesus is above them. They aided people throughout Scripture. They fought on their behalf. They rescued them. They are eternal as far as we know in Scripture. They worship God. That's what they do. And they surround Jesus' life from birth through his death. They're significant, right, all throughout Scripture. But they are not greater than Jesus. And this church, most likely, is struggling with it. If the, and I read a commentator say this. If the, if the church is talking about angels, then it's a great concern. Especially if they're elevating angel. And maybe even at this time, which is a lot of things circulating at that time that we found historically that they were talking about angels and elevating them as a Messiah. They would pray to angels. They would, they would talk to their angels all the time. It became the center of some of their worship. So he is addressing it. If they're concerned about it, he is concerned about it. And also you have to remember there's a third of angels that aren't the wonderful ones that we think about in the Bible with the fluffy, beautiful wings, you know, and the little halo. These are a third that are evil spirits that have fallen. They decided to follow evil. They had taken dominion from man that Christ bought back in ultimate authority. They hate God's image bearers because they bear God's image. They are opposed to all things shalom. I, I, you know, I don't see them either, but there's a felt experience from them. They are restless. They are destructive. They are enemies of everything God is, has for his image bearers in this world. I cannot lay out the logistics of all of that. I just know this is how Scripture speaks of them. And so you have a very big spiritual world that Jesus is in authority over. Why does this matter? I'll tell you in a second. As a kid, I don't read novels. I actually only read things that have facts and biographies. I don't. It's like a weird thing I have. It's like someone's like, you should read this novel. I'm like, are you curious? I, I have other things to do than challenge my mind creatively like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not something I do. Well, I was given this book and I read it. It was called This Present Darkness, and it was this Christian book about angels and demons. And as a young kid, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's demons everywhere. There's, do you know how you can get like that? There's demons everywhere. You know, like you hear a creak in the door, demon. Yeah, so I, I was like, where's my angels? And I remember it just being something that I didn't understand much about. I didn't get much about it. But what I wished as a kid, I had understood that Jesus is an authority over all the spiritual world. That wasn't so preached. It was about like, let's uh, scare him up with a couple demons, right? 
you have to know that however you feel about this unseen world, this unseen realm, Christ is in authority. And it matters so much and why he makes his strong points. And you have to remember, what were people most stunned about when Jesus was ministering? That these untouchable entities, these evil forces, were in, he was in authority over them. They would bow their knee. They would tremble. It matters because when you're experiencing something, you must know that you have Christ in you that is greater than that, that puts those things to their knees or the spiritual world. Now, before Jesus, nobody messed with these things. Tell me in the Bible where someone told an angel that they need to just uh, uh, go do this and go do that and leave me alone. Nobody does that. Nobody messed with angels. These are beings in God's creative chain, in his creation chain, that were greater than man. And nobody did. And so you never see in the Bible someone fighting with it, messing with one, Jacob, but never really telling them what to do. And you never saw someone tell somebody who was demonically oppressed what to do. They only chained them up in barns or they cast them out of the city or they were conflicted and they just, they just tried to stay away from them. When Jesus showed up, what mattered was that when he showed up, those things fell to the ground at his authority. I was showing my kid the other day uh, a, a nostalgic movie uh, uh, the Bugs Life, do you know that Pixar movie? Such a great movie. I hadn't seen it forever. And I was like, there's no way he's going to watch this thing. Like, he's like, you know, like, where's his hat sideways? Like, there's just no way he's going to watch this. And uh, he watched the whole thing. And he was like, he's like, yeah, it's good. He's like, it's really old. And I was like, calm down. Like, it's, but he's like, but it was good. But I had forgotten that how, that it reminded me of this. Like, that, that these it's hard to be adolescent about this, but these grasshoppers were in, uh, untouchable. And the only way that they could deal with them was to try to find something else that was bigger. And in this situation, no one had ever seen someone put these things into authority like Jesus did. So here we go. Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. I'm just going to read it right through because it's the best way to read it for the sermon. And um, remember what he's doing. And he, he's doing the work for me in a sermon. He is citing the Old Testament prophecies that point to the Messiah and his authority. So he's doing all the work here for them. It's a, it's a really well done opening part of this sermon. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you? Stop looking to these angels. What are you doing? You are going to the fringe he quotes Psalm uh, 2.7 by saying that. Or again, I will be uh, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's quoting 2 Samuel 7.14. These are all prophetic about who Jesus is and his authority. And again, when he uh, brings the firstborn into the world and says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's a big one. Deuteronomy 32.43. Uh, in verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Psalms 104, what that means is what he decides to do with them, they do. They have no authority to do their own. They can free will choose like the other demons, but God 
sends them. Now, verse 8 is when he begins to change the tone a little bit in his sermon. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is who Jesus is. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness beyond your companion. Psalms 45, 6 through 7. And he goes on to say more about Jesus. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens of, uh, are the works of your hands. They will perish. So he takes us from framing angels, right, to who Jesus is, and then reminds them that this world is temporal. So why put your hope in things that will fail? They perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. I love the imagery. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The temporal will not last. God's kingdom is forever, and he is bringing them right back to Scripture and pointing to them, remember, you're, you're, you're succumbing to temporal concerns and forfeiting a, 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 a faith in something that is eternal. Why would you do it? Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand? This is an early clue to what he will talk about in chapters later about the high priest. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalms 110.1. Verse 14 is a really interesting verse. So he quotes scripture and then he makes a statement. And so now he's going to make a follow-up statement for these verses. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now he has done something theologically very important, doctrinally very important, but he is now bringing them to a place to see that, hey, wait, if I have Jesus in me, I live in that authority as well. I no longer am under that authority. And God sends his ministering agents through Jesus at God's will and calling as we call out to help. He is placing Jesus at the forefront and he is moving the angels to the fringe of the church. And he just did this in the opening part of his sermon. It's, it's brilliant what he does. I, I, I think that we maybe need to do that more. Uh, we have to be careful. And I think I, I, I really appreciate what... Uh, the writer is doing because I think as a church we can tend to elevate things to the forefront why we're elevating oikos to the forefront is because it's what the main thing Jesus asks us to do but a lot of times churches can get caught up in this and this is what this church I think this is what's happening that's why he wants to deal with it the church can get caught up in the fringe things I listed a few that I think sometimes I see elevated higher and we have to always remind ourselves as a church of what is the forefront. Sometimes you hear like this prosperity gospel. It can be elevated to the forefront where it's all about making the money for the, for the Lord, from the Lord. Or social issues can be at the forefront. Or political times can be at the forefront. Gifts of the Spirit, a good thing, can even become that's what this church is about is gifts of the Spirit. And we celebrate those 
almost as much or more as Jesus. Leaders can be put at the forefront of a church when they should be at the fringe like all those others. And times, because we're scared of the times around us, we can put that at the forefront of the church, but they are fringe. What needs to be at the forefront of the church, and this writer is doing it, is Jesus, his authority, and his power to destroy sin, and everybody should know it. It matters, right? And I think he's pulling two things out of here. It matters that you know your salvation is secure in the spirit world. It matters. It cannot be taken away from you by another spiritual force. It cannot be uh, uh, overtaken. Jesus cannot be outdone. Verse 14, that strange verse that it's like, wait, do I get to like tell angels what to do? Like angels, can you do my homework? I know I got chat GPT, but can you do my homework for me? Like, no, no, no. Like that's not how that works. Jesus who lives in you is for you and he will d deploy his service for you. But it means that you have citizen privileges in heaven. I can't go and tell the police what to do, but I live in a country that has a, a way that I feel safe within it, that I will be looked out for, right? And you are under new management. That's what verse 14 means. God is greater than all created spiritual beings. That's what he wanted to deal with. The second callback, he does, because he, he stops the scripture quoting, and he goes into a, a quick warning in the, in early on in the scripture, he says, essentially, you guys got to be careful because you're drifting away. And it's a strong warning, stronger than what the language gives it. He gives this early warning uh, to frame the importance of what they're getting ready to learn and what they just learned. You cannot get off the track. You cannot just take it lightly. You can't lose focus. Uh, when I was a uh, graduated high school my summer year, uh, I got a job doing construction, which was really great for me and the worst thing the foreman ever did to hire me because I am not that guy and not one to pay too close to, to some detail. And so he's like, you're going to roof this roof today with shingles. And I was like, great. Oh, great. So he's like, all you, now if you've ever done this, all you have to do is draw the this plumb line, you have to, this line across, and you just follow that line across the way, and you make sure you keep it straight. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I had roofed the roof. And by the end of the day, <laughs> I stood back, and my roof jingles went just like this. And I, because I kept cutting, and I was like, why do I have to keep cutting these in a weird angle all the way? And when he came back and saw it, I wasn't fired, thank God, because <laughs> he needed me to fix it. And it was job security for me, so it was great. I had to rip it all off. He was so upset. Like, why didn't you follow the line? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that line. Because I thought I could just eye it. And I slowly got off course because I didn't hold to what was plumb. He is calling them to pay strong attention to your faith to pay strong attention to it, to hold fast to it, or you will drift. Hebrews 2, we have eight more verses, and then we'll close. Verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. Now, this is very subtle here, but this means warning. 
This is a strong warning. This is a don't mess around warning. If my contractor had said to me and put that type of language in me, like, do not do this or you'll die, I would have been like, I'll get the, I'll get the roof straight. I didn't do that. He is making sure he gets a strong warning. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard lest we drift from it. Has anybody ever experienced the drift? Oh, that drift is dangerous. You take your eye off of the ball. You get comfortable. You start just kind of, eh, maybe. You become a little bit complacent about it. He's attacking, the author will do this throughout the book, he's attacking apathy. Apathy is so destructive to your faith. This unconcernedness about the real truths, spiritual truths, taking them as, as, as closely as possible, hanging on to them, that unconcernedness is hurting your faith. For some of you younger generation, it's the meh of life, right? That is apathy. Hmm. Well, okay. He is calling them to something very serious. When we did VBS with the kids years back, when we couldn't do it here, which is so wonderful that we can, we had to go down to the bay. And one year, I'll never forget it, the bay was, was literally, the current was so strong, and we had the, all your little kids out there, safe, they all came back, but it was like, oh, I think someone's going to get, someone's going out to the ocean, guarantee it. And so we, all of our kids were there, my kids were in it too, and I told my son, I said, when you and your friend are on this tube, you have to stay close. Now, I don't know why I was putting all that responsibility on a five-year-old, but I did it. I was like, it's your fault if you go out to the ocean. And I remember just talking, chatting it up. I, <laughs> I'd look out at the bay, and we were close to uh, the jetty. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my son's gone. My son and his friend, of which now I'm pretty sure I'm going to jail for, are gone. And it, I got on my paddleboard. I paddled out. The, the, the lifeguard boat was coming out. It was like that. The current's strong. You got to watch out. They were just playing and splashing and giggling. I took my eye off the ball for one moment, and they drifted. You cannot, cannot take your eye off of the realities of Christ and just be eh, about it. You will drift, and you won't realize how far you have gone. He goes on in verse 2. This is still part of it before he jumps right back into close out angels. He says, for since the message declared by angels... Proved to be reliable, right? Talking about the Old Testament when they delivered all these wonderful things they were trying to go back to. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the angels, the angels, yeah, they were fair. It was declared at the first, uh, at first by, um, I'm sorry, it was declared at, oh, wow, skipped verse 3. How shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation. This is the strong warning. How will you escape if you neglect this great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. That's important. And it was attested to by those who heard. The apostles and all those who they probably heard from. And while God was also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, meaning this, God made it very, very clear. How can you drift? 
Now, we didn't live then, but I guarantee you have moments in your life where you can go, God was very clear here. He was very clear here. He was very clear here. How can you drift? Why drift? We have to, do, we have to be so careful not to drift. It's slow and it's subtle and it happens. Verse 5, and it'll close out. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. These are his statements of which we are speaking. Then he begins to quote again. It, it has been testified somewhere. He means Psalm 8, 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You were made a little lower than angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And that's the closing thought and closing scripture. And he chose well that everything is under his feet. And it's because of Jesus' incarnation is that he can walk with you when you struggle and suffer. It's because of him becoming a human is because he can be with you and step with you and empathize and be with you in that struggle like he did all throughout the New Testament as he encouraged, and we read in Acts, Paul, like, you're going to be okay. I'm gonna, not going to leave you. You will do what I told you to do. You'll get it done. It's going to be all right. And comforting him. It's going to be okay. You, you can't remove the reality of Jesus' authority no matter how hard you try. I, I, sorry to talk about children so much, but I remember when, when I would tell one of my kids and they didn't like what I was hearing when they were younger, they would put their fingers in their ear and they'd be like, I, I don't want to hear it, I want to hear it, I want to hear it. You, you know what I'm talking about? You ever had that? And it's like, uh, that, that doesn't stop what's happening to you. <laughs> Just so you know. The discipline train's coming and, and uh, you can put your fingers in your ear all you want. We cannot ignore the reality of Jesus' authority. I will tell you what you can do. I think, but he's hoping that they won't do. You can foolishly live your life. I think uh, not acknowledging his authority in your life. You can't dethrone Jesus, but you can dethrone him from your heart. And you can foolishly ignore him and the spirit and the way you live your life. You can do it, and it's foolish. And you will reap the fruit that is, will waste away, and it will, rot, it will rot your belly. You can foolishly do that, and you can experience a lifeless fruit that doesn't save. You can do that. This is what he's presenting them with. You can do that if you want. You will never change the reality of Jesus' authority. So align your heart to the reality of Christ and who he is and what he has done for you. That's what he's calling them back to. Will you guys bow your heads? If there's one thing I can encourage you to do, it, it is to tie yourself to the rock that is stable. I think about this a lot in my life where um, I, I will not realize that I should fasten things a little more secure 
before I get pulled out into the sea. I'm in a harbor of salvation, but the sea wants to pull me into oblivion. And you will have to do that. And the writer is telling them, pay careful attention. Don't loosen up. Don't let go. Don't get lazy. Pay careful attention. And what I love about this little section in this sermon of his is that it's another strong reminder that Jesus is the ultimate authority that will never change, cannot change, which means you stand in that with him. And this is why God easily says, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is why God says that he will be with you. You can endure. This is why he says, I have promises for you. Don't give up. This is why he promises good fruit in your life. This is why he promises shalom in your life. Perfect peace. That's why he can, because he has the authority to do so. And you stand in him with that as someone who is inherited as a child of God. So I want to encourage you in that today. He is the highest. And to hold fast and do not drift as hard as the current will be. God, we love you. We thank you so much. God, I ask that we leave today with a renewed sense of putting you at the forefront and not letting fringe uh, pieces of, of theology become the dominant piece, which is you are the dominant piece, Jesus. And help us remain there, that we stay focused on the mission, the main thing, the main thing. And God, I also ask that you bring a, a humility to our heart to see the greatness of your authority and the work of the cross so we can stand in that authority with you and stay there with you. And God, that we have authority through you over things that are most fearful in life. But they cower and bow before you. And so we stand there. God, and I ask that we, some of us go home and say, man, I've been drifting out a little bit more. I need to sure myself up against the anchor. I need to pay careful attention so I don't drift. We love you. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your strength. And thank you for your word that we, thousands of years later, as human beings, still need the very same things he is calling them to. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me this last song?